Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis, Jason Rosenbaum and Joe Manis. And joining us from Jefferson City through the magic of radio is Senator Kurt Schaefer. Yes, he's a Republican from Columbia. The Berkeley of Missouri. The, the Berkeley of Missouri. <laughs> but he is, I think, the first Republican in modern history to win re-election to the Senate and a district representing Boone County. So he's made quite a bit of history in his short tenure in the legislature. So Beautiful Columbia. I, Jason and I both went to Mizzou, and I really like Columbia. It I, is a nice place. I, I love Columbia. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tolerate Columbia. No, oh, I, it's I, a nice I, place. I love Columbia, too. Yeah. So, but... Um, the, the Columbia sen- is having some growing pains lately, but uh, they'll, they'll get it worked out. Yeah, we, we won't ask you to opine on that. We'll have the mayor on eventually. <laughs> but uh, the senator and I have known each other for many years. I covered his first race for the state Senate. But before we kind of get into that terrible, terrible contest, tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of about your professional career and kind of how you got into Missouri politics. And, and also what your district And also in. what your district is. Yeah, my, my district, it's Senate District 19, and that includes all of Boone County, which Columbia is the county seat of Boone County, and all of Cooper County, which is the county to the west if you're driving down Highway 70, and Booneville is the uh, county seat of uh, Cooper County. And uh, when I actually got elected in 2008, it included Randolph County, but because of population shifts, it's now Boone and, and Cooper. Um, I actually, I grew up in St. Louis. Uh, my father was a doctor at St. John's Hospital, and I came to Columbia. Key question. My... Where did you go, <laughs> go to, to high, high school? school. Parkway West. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. And so uh, I came to uh, came to Columbia in 1983 as a freshman, and for the most part, I uh, have been here ever since. I met my wife at Mizzou. Uh, I was a bartender at the Blue Note all through my undergraduate days. <laughs> and, uh, she was a waitress next door at Trattoria Stradinova, and um, so we met. We got married right when we graduated, and uh, moved away to Vermont for three years, where I got my uh, my law degree as well as a master's in environmental law. I I went to law school for environmental law, and they have a, a top program in the country, really. It's a wonderful program. And so we were in Vermont for three years, and uh, when I graduated, we came back, and I started working as a prosecutor in the attorney general's office. Now, the, the big thing that I wanted to ask you, and I kind of jokingly said this beforehand, but you actually live, you were in Manchester for a while, and you're well acquainted with the factory records, essentially. That's true. Uh, and the reason I'm interested in this is I'm a huge New Order and Joy Division fan, and to find somebody who's in Missouri politics who actually <laughs> knows who they are is kind of rare. So, is, well, so can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I, when I was 19, I, 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 first of all, I worked and saved up money, and then when I was 19, I took off, and I, I basically traveled through Europe living out of a backpack. And when I started running out of money, I went to Manchester because I had some friends uh, who, who were from Columbia that were living in Manchester. And... And so uh, I, I got a job. I, I tried to get a job at Factory Records as a bartender, but they were completely above board. And um, if, without a work permit, they wouldn't hire you. But they did direct me to the bar next door where I was a bartender, <laughs> where I did become a bartender, where you could work for cash in hand. And that was back in the 80s when, when frankly, everyone in England was on the dole. And so, you know, jobs like waitress, bartender, you couldn't get anybody to do it. Because, frankly, they made more money just staying home, being on the dole. So it was very easy to get a job in England. Before that, I had... Uh, been in, in Germany most of the time, and it was very, very hard to work without a work permit uh, in Germany. But I went to Factory Records because also I am a huge Joy Division and New Order fan. Yes, I and, finally and, uh, got. I, tried, I, I finally got you on tape to admit this. Your your political career I, is I, over. I, so. I'm probably a bigger Joy Division fan than New Order, but 
Uh, the funny thing is, so now my, my kids, particularly my boys who are 13 and 16, who listen to all 80s music now, by the way, um, you know, I told them when I went to Factory Records, and I can't remember the guy's name who was managing at the time. He was a very nice guy. He was from New York. And he couldn't give me a job, but he gave me all these great Factory Records posters. Oh, wow. All these bands that, that were on, you know, Factory Records, in, including New Order and several others. And I think I got rid of those in a garage sale, like in the early 90s. And my kids are so upset about that because they want those posters back. Oh, man. Now, now, when you worked in the AG's office, skipping, uh, so you were working under now Governor Jay Nixon, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so when I went to law school, um, you know, some people work their first summer, some don't. I did. I came back and I worked in the general counsel's office my first summer of law school uh, at, at the Department of Natural Resources. And then from that, I uh, got an offer from the Attorney General's office to actually be the first intern, uh, summer intern they ever had in the environmental division at the Attorney General's office. So I did that my second summer of law school. And then after that summer, got a job offer uh, from uh, the Attorney General, who was Jay Nixon at the time. And uh, so I knew going into my third year, we were coming back to Missouri because I really wanted to take that job. And, and so came back and worked there for four years. And it's, it's interesting because at that time, they had never started anyone out in the environmental division. And I thought, well, I have this environmental, uh, these credentials, this master's degree in environmental law. And so when I came back, they put me in the criminal appeals division. And I did that for a while. And I, I had taken you know, criminal law and criminal constitutional procedure in law school. But I really did not want to practice criminal law. And I was there for a couple months. Well, the, for the first month, I was a little bit angry. And then I just grew to absolutely love it. And from there, started doing special prosecutions, prosecuted all kinds of cases around the state of Missouri, including death penalty cases. And uh, just grew to love the job and was there for three years. And then an opening came up in environmental, and I didn't want to go. But they did put me up there for about a year. And, uh, and that was um, 1999, I guess. And the law firm that I'm currently with, Lathrop & Gage, was just opening an office in Jeff City, and so they hired me from the office, and I've pretty much been with Lathrop ever since. So uh, fast-forwarding to 2008 a little bit, um, you had actually never run for public office before, but you were kind of in the public eye several times because you were the deputy director of the Department of Natural Resources, which meant you dealt with a lot of high-profile situations. Under like Matt. Under Governor Matt, Matt Blunt. Blunt. So the, right. the Tom Sock situation, the Boonville Bridge situation, it was kind of a situation like even though you had never run before, it, you were still kind of in public service because you were in the executive branch. And um, as I kind of alluded to before, you jumped into the race against incumbent Senator Chuck Graham, who had never lost an election previously, but had just had some, let's just say, issues with 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 a DWI charge that kind of hamstrung him a little bit. Um, it was. Yeah. Continue. Well, he was a 14-year in, in, incumbent, and you know, keep in mind, my, my Senate district is still majority Democrat. And so um, you know, I, I had thought about running for public office. My wife actually told me in law school that she would leave me if I ever ran for public office, but she's since changed her mind. Um, you know, being a prosecutor, I, I think, really you know, caused her, and myself as well, to understand what it means to be in, in the public sector and doing, doing public work. And so we, we actually really grew to, to, to be very comfortable with it. And, 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 to be in a position to run. And so in 2008, when an opportunity presented itself to run for Senate, and Jason, as you said, having not uh, run for the House or anything before, it's a little bit unusual to come straight out of the box and run for Senate. But you know, I, I, I've given legal advice to several governors and been a, a prosecutor and uh, decided it was time basically for me to, to take my own advice rather than giving it to, to other elected officials. And also, you know, our kids, we have three kids, and they're in the public school system in Columbia. And as they were getting older, we started getting much more concerned uh, about, you know, what, what we were going to uh, 
do for them in terms of public education and a lot of other things. And so it really drove me to run. And so when I ran in 2008, I was only the second Republican ever to win for that Senate district. It was one guy before me, a senator named Larry Marshall, who served one term back in the 1970s. And then, uh, you know, we won by, I think, two or three points. Yeah, I was just going to say, I actually pulled up the article from that night. I called it one of the biggest upsets in recent local political history. And, and here's why I said that I didn't do that just flippantly. You have to remember that 2008 was the election cycle in Boone County where Barack Obama's people were putting in a lot of effort and people. You had, and a he, had just come, he had just come to Columbia. He, he had come to election. Columbia. Yes. Um, you had a situation where there was a competitive congressional race there where Judy Baker was also marshalling forces. And you had a situation south of Columbia where Chris Kelly was running pretty strongly against Ed Robb. Under usual circumstances, all that confluence of Democratic activity probably would have been made it difficult for a Republican to win, even against a, an incumbent who had been through some controversy. Yet, not only did you win by two percentage points, I believe you won Boone County and Randolph County outright. Yeah. Hence the reason it was one of the biggest upsets in local political history. So Yeah, and it was in interesting to see because, you know, we, Randolph County is more Republican than Boone, and so we thought we'd win that, and those results came in first, and, and we did win by a pretty good margin, but then uh, we carried not only all of Boone County, but the city of Columbia as well, which is That's something that unusual. Nobody, nobody thought we would do. But you know, I, I think a lot of that goes to the fact that, you know, my wife and, and I and, and our family, we've been in Columbia a long time, and, and we know a lot of people in the community. So I think when people were making that vote, it wasn't, it wasn't based solely off of just TV commercials or, or, or mailers. I think people knew who we were, and I think they supported who we were, including a lot of Democrats. And so. Um, yeah, we won that. It was a little bit different story when I was up for re-election in 2012. That was that was a, a much larger margin. Yes, yes, you defeated Mary Still by a pretty larger margin. But but you know we could that go actually carried in that 2012 cycle carried Boone by the same margin that Governor Nixon carried Boone by. So really? there you go. That's Six, interesting. About 16. So so there you go. So we could probably go into memory lane for hours, but we do want to kind of transition into sure. kind of more current things. You are the you are the. Um, Chairman Senate. of the Senate Appropriations Committee. You've actually been chairman, I think, now for five or six years, if I'm Yeah, is th this is the fifth year, and so uh, next year should be my last year. So, yeah, it'll be six six budget cycles as the chairman, which in the time of term limits is, is unprecedented. Yes, that is. It, 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 I think it had to take a lot of events for that to happen. I think that the, you know, Senator Nodler was, was the appropriations chair, and he stepped down to run for Congress. I think then uh, Senator Mayer became appropriations chair, and you were the mm -hmm. vice chair. And then when right. he became pro tem, you were next in line to become right. appropriations chair. It is unusual because that's one of the top committee posts to have. And usually you get it right around like your fourth or fifth year. So getting, yeah, getting it, in my second second year was that was a big deal. Yeah. So so kind of to parlay into current events, the budget or the governor has kind of released his initial budget. Your your committee will be have a pretty instrumental role in shaping the final product. What's kind of your general thoughts on what the budget situation is and what the governor wants? You know, I, I don't think the budget that the governor presented to us is really a, a realistic budget. He basically gave us a, a budget that says, you know, if you do Medicaid expansion, I'll fund public education. I'll fund all these things like vi domestic violence shelters and, and, and other things that we funded in the 15 budget. But if you don't do Medicaid expansion, I won't do it. And that, that, that's budget by hostage. Um, particularly using uh, kids and, and other more uh, vulnerable uh, portions of, of, of Missouri as hostages, and, and we're simply not going to do that. I think we're going to go back to really a lot of the things that we had in this year's budget, the 2015 budget, 
and look at all those things like money for kids with autism, uh, money for domestic violence shelters, rape kits for kids, uh, the Cyber Crimes Task Force, all those things that we funded, many of which the governor vetoed. We overrode his vetoes in September. He still continues to withhold that money. And we believe that money should be spent on what we appropriated it to. And so if he's not going to do it in 15, I think we're going to go right back to those things in 16 and make sure that money's in there. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this budget uh, proposal this time is because this is after Amendment 10 has passed, which uh, to be, be simpli- to simplify, um, reduces the governor's powers a bit regarding uh, withholds and um, line item vetoes because it does give the General Assembly more clout as far as overriding. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he does have th- it. I was there at the briefing that uh, Budget Director Lubring had. And basically all of his proposals, instead of in one pot, like here's my budget proposal, it was actually three pots. There was his budget proposal. Then there's his supplemental budget proposal. Then there's the bond proposal. And so you almost have to add all the stuff from all three to get what he's really proposing. And um, so when you look at just the basic budget proposal, it almost was slightly less than what the current have they currently have without this the supplemental how do you deal with all those three pots how are you going to be dealing with that as far as what goes where is the supplemental have any chance of passage just your thoughts i mean the money for for the bonding a lot of that actually is built into the 15 budget so that's not that big of a change you know what's different about this budget for 2015 the governor built a budget entirely around medicaid expansion so this you know, this additional money that we'd get from the federal government uh, for a short period of time, if we would do expansion, he builds that into all these programs. Well, he could not do that for the 2016 budget because Correct. there is a provision in Amendment 10 that says he cannot base his budget on, on proposed legislation. So what he did was he really gave us two budgets, kind of a, 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 a budget in the regular budget line and then footnotes. And so yes. I'll give you an example. One of the comments that he made during his State of the State was that he wanted to give a $150 million increase to K-12 education. Well, you have to look at those footnotes to see that $80 million of that is contingent on Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, some of those things, I think his statements that he made in the State of the State don't really match up with what's in the budget books. Now, he's had four months to draft this budget, and, and you know, we've had it for a couple of days, and so we're still going through it. But there's a lot of examples where, where we really can't rely on the statements the governor made. I'll give you another one. Um, for example, Access Missouri Scholarship Money, which is Missouri's need-based scholarship fund for our uh, public four-year institutions, we had funded that at a certain level, and uh, the governor currently is withholding $11 million this year. Well, his proposal next year is to withhold uh, seven, or excuse me, $9 million. And uh, so he's, he's categorizing that as a two, $2 million increase. Well, it's not. He's just cutting them by, by $9 million instead of $11 million. So it's not really a $2 million increase. So you have to go through all the kind of the catch phrases they use and the sound bites and really look at what he's got uh, in the numbers. But essentially, if there's one takeaway from this budget, it's he, he has delivered us a budget as a ransom note and holding a lot of groups, whether it be kids with autism or uh, people who suffer from Alzheimer's uh, or victims of domestic violence, he, he's holding them all hostage to get Medicaid expansion. So how do you deal with that, especially when this has, most of the stuff has to go through the House first? Um, are you talking a lot with your counterpart over in the House or sort of what's going to be the... Um logistics on this? Yeah, I mean, I I talk to Tom Flanagan all the time. I think we benefit right now from the House and the Senate having a very good relationship. 
Uh, and so we, we talk quite a bit, but this concept of looking at what's in the 15 budget that we wanted funded, and, and keep in mind, he's still withholding uh, $500 million of what we appropriated uh, in, the, in the 15 budget. And, until we see those things funded, we really don't, I think, have a lot of appetite to increase other things. And we did have to basically rewrite our own budget uh, aside from the governor's recommendations for the 15 budget because he had based so much on Medicaid expansion. And, and so we're used to doing that. Um, I simply hope that the governor will see fit to release some of these funds for cyber crimes task forces and domestic violence shelters and some of these other things that actually what he's done in his 16 budget, and I'll, I'll use the example of cyber crimes task forces. These are, these, this is the money that goes to law enforcement to basically catch trolls on the internet who are out there trolling basically for kids to engage in sex acts with. And, um, you know, their budget's 1.5 million. It's what we appropriated to them. That's all they have. And the governor, not only has he withheld it for this year, but he's taken it completely out of his budget for 2016. And we see on a lot of those withholds, uh, like uh, I mentioned, domestic violence shelters and others, where not only is he withholding this year, he has converted that into a permanent cut in his budget for 16. Yeah. So now that Amendment 10 is in the Constitution, I guess that provides the legislature the option to essentially override withholds. And I may be paraphrasing there. What, how does that it, change the dynamic? Well, it does. And, and, and keep in mind, I mean, the constitutional structure since Missouri became a state really was the budget is drafted by the legislature. The governor gives recommendations. The, the budget uh, is drafted by the legislature. And then if the governor doesn't like a, a budget line, he can veto it. And the budget, for most of the $26 billion state budget, it's in, it's in 13 core budget bills. And Correct. You know, budget, House Bill 1 is, uh, is public debt. House Bill 2 is K-12 through education. House Bill 3 is higher ed and so on. So they're, they're broken down by subject matter. And on those 13 core budget bills, those are the only bills that under the Constitution the governor can line item veto. And, and that's what he's supposed to do. So, for example, if we give $500,000 to domestic violence shelters and he doesn't like that, then he should veto it. But he won't veto it, and, and this has been really his, his M.O. kind of since he came in office, because, of, first of all, there's a lot of negative publicity that goes along with a veto. And then on top of that, we have the ability to override him with a two-thirds majority on a veto. He won't veto. He just does what he calls a withhold or a budget restriction, which really is not a term of art. It's not defined anywhere. He just doesn't give the intended target the money. And so because of those abuses, that's what necessitated the need for Amendment 10, which Missouri voters passed uh, this past fall, which says, okay, not only can we come back and override him on line item vetoes in the budget, but we can override him on withholds. And, and I think that we should try out that power very soon. I think cybercrimes task forces should be one of the first ones up. Yeah, don't you run into a problem if it looks like as they're coming to the end of the fiscal year that then there's that the state's going to go over and not have a balanced budget that he might be vetoing or blocking other things at the very end uh, just because he has to have a balanced budget at the at the end of June 30th? Right, and we have to have a balanced budget, and we take that very seriously, and we always have a balanced budget. We're very conservative in that regard. Keep in mind, the governor right now withholding about $500 million of, of general revenue, saying we don't have the money, yet he just came to us with a supplemental budget and wants new spending authority for $140 million additional general revenue dollars. And on top of that, his budget book shows him carrying over, even if we give him that $140 million now, he's still showing he's going to carry over $110 million to start the next fiscal year. So you add that, the recognition that there's at least $250 million of general revenue that he's not been acknowledging. And on top of that, you have to look at some of the things that we built into the budget. 
uh, one of the ways that we had built into the budget to fold Fulton, Fulton Hospital, which we ended up not needing because we funded it another way, uh, for example, is about $200 million, which is not going to be spent. And then also uh, we had $25 million for the Historical Society for uh, building a new building. That's not going to be done. So there are a whole lot of things that general revenue was accounted for, which that money was there and set aside for, which they're not going to be done this year. So you add all those things up, and the governor clearly has much more money than he's willing to acknowledge. Now, we're not going to use Amendment 10 to the point where, where we would get into a situation where the state literally did not have enough money uh, to pay the bills. But we're so far from that. And I think the best example are, are those 47 items that we overrode him on in the veto session, which totaled about $49 million, which we clearly have. Uh, and again, there are all those things for vulnerable Missourians that we wanted funded that, that he continues to not fund. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about another committee that you are chairing, the Joint Task Force or Joint Committee on uh, Public Accountability. Is that? Yeah, it's, it's a Joint Committee on Governmental Accountability. And one of the things that you will be looking into is how Ferguson was handled. So f for our listeners, why don't you tell them a little bit about the things that this committee is going to be investigating. Yeah, you know, there was a law passed in 2004 that created this committee. It's an investigative type committee, and it actually has never been used. Uh, so we were impaneled last month. It is a bipartisan uh, joint uh, House and Senate committee. So we've got Republicans and Democrats, House members and Senate members, who were put together by uh, by the Speaker of the House and the President for the time of the Senate to look into the, the response uh, to Ferguson. And a lot of this comes is a response. If you remember back in December, the governor was going to call us in for a special session to ask for more money to, to, to respond to Ferguson, yet we had given him $19 million of emergency money for exactly this purpose. And at that point, we were showing that he, he still had about, I think, $16 million left. Still to date, I think he spent about 11. Um, so he's got you know about eight million left in that line, but it, it, it raised everyone's concern of, well, okay, what's this money going to? And, for example, on the issue of Ferguson, the night the verdict was read and we saw a lot of, you know, uh, violence out in the community and buildings burnt, you know, the governor showing a, a substantial expenditure for the National Guard. But most people, in fact, you know, you didn't have to be in Missouri. You could be anywhere in the country and you could hear commentary on any one of the networks. Where are they? You know, is, is Ferguson burned um, as well as neighboring communities, some of which had just as many buildings burnt as Ferguson did? where was the law enforcement? And we've heard now from firefighters uh, also who basically had to throw down hoses and get out of a situation because they were being shot at because they had been promised that there would be law enforcement if there was a, a civil disruption, and yet law enforcement wasn't there. And so the question of what, what happened here and why were public resources spent but apparently not really employed? And so that's what the committee's going to look at. We, we had one organizational meeting a few weeks ago, which was our first meeting to elect a chairman and a vice chair, I was elected committee or a senate uh, uh, chairman of that committee. And then uh, now we are in the process of looking at what documents we want to gather from from multiple entities involved before we start calling in witnesses to uh, to provide testimony on what happened. Yeah, who who are some of the witnesses that you are thinking about? Uh, well, about you know, in? obviously we we've seen a lot of communications, and, and and a good example is one that frankly has been in the media in the last couple of days which is an email string that, that, that purports anyway to show that direction from the governor's office was if, if they couldn't strong arm the mayor or the police chief, excuse me, of Ferguson to resign, 
then they were going to be on their own if there was civil unrest. And so that involved members of the governor's office. Uh, so obviously we'd want to hear from them. I think we need to hear from the highway patrol. Uh, I think we need to hear from the mayors of Delwood and from Ferguson and other communities that were affected by this. Uh, I think we need to hear from local law enforcement, uh, whether that's St. Louis County or other local municipal law enforcement agencies, and, um, and from the National Guard, and actually determine you know, why certain decisions were made. If, if public funding was, was spent, why were decisions made not to uh, protect uh, life and property? Well, I, I've talked with Mayor Knowles both before the grand jury decision and, and afterward. And one thing that has kind of struck me is how little he was in the loop from the governor's administration, kind of in the run-up to the grand jury decision. Now, I've heard that maybe the governor's office communicated with the city manager, who basically, for all intents and purposes, runs a lot of things in Ferguson. But do you have any idea why the governor was so apparently hesitant to communicate things with the elected leadership of Ferguson? Was it politics? Was it the fact that maybe the governor didn't want to be seen with the elected white leadership of Ferguson when that aspect of, you know, racial representation on councils was an issue? Do you have any insight on, like, why that disconnect happened? Or are you still you kind know, of in the I early mean, stages? It'd be speculation on my part at this point to say, but I think these are the things that we need to hear and we need to find out. You know, I, I mean, you know, this governor traditionally is disengaged in everything. But the one thing that you would hope there'd be some engagement in is, is you know, when, when there's a crisis like this. I mean, we certainly saw him in, in Joplin every day after the tornado. So, so why not here? Uh, you know, I, I hope we find out why. But, uh, you know, I know that both uh, the mayor of Ferguson as well as the mayor of Delwood and others uh, have told many people that they were, they tried to get a hold of the governor on the night the verdict was read, for example, and, and, and bad things were happening, and they tried to get the governor on the phone, and all staff would say is he's unavailable to talk to you. And so, you know, even leading up to it, and I know that he did not personally speak, as far as I know, with anyone from Ferguson uh, leading up to that, but the question is, really, on the night that there's a crisis, and you need those resources that apparently are just miles away in mall parking lots or at an airport hangar at Lambert, uh, why aren't those things being engaged? And, and not only why aren't they being engaged, but if you're not going to engage them, then step up to the plate and say what your rationale is and why you're making the decisions you're making. But, but making yourself unavailable in a time of need is absolutely unacceptable. Now, what and do you, I, I hope that we get to the bottom of that. Now, with this panel, I mean, the perception has been that the governor and his office in particular are going to be under scrutiny. What do you hope comes out of this? Is there any legislative proposals that you're hoping to come out of this? Is there uh, some sort of change in direction, I mean, concrete, that might affect future governors? Is there some sort of broad thing that you want to yeah, see? Yeah, I, I think there's several things. I mean, number one is just trying to find the truth of what actually happened, because I think with as much national coverage as that issue has received, it's still not really understood by anyone, even anyone close to it, what really happened happened. And I think, I think for our own benefit and the benefit of the citizens of the state of Missouri that we don't repeat this, we need to know what happened. And I suspect that probably some legislation will come out of it, particularly if, you know, there, there were politics involved to, to force someone to resign. And, and, you know, much like the budget we're dealing with now, the hostages in that case were business owners and residents of the city of Ferguson who were going to be held hostage and their buildings burnt down. If, uh, if the police chief didn't resign. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that should not exist in state government. And if that's what happened, then we may need a legislative fix for that. 
So let's kind of uh, transition into something that is in the news at this very day, the race for attorney general Got in 2016. Got a bit more crowded today. But the thing is, you actually announced that you were going to run for this, I think, in 2013. I don't know exactly the month, but you've been in this race for a while. It was actually last year. It was last year. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. so I know that you worked for the attorney general's office before, and there was some speculation that you were interested in this. But what kind of prompted you to get into that contest? You know, I, I tell people that to, to, to this day— uh, you know, being a prosecutor at the attorney general's office is the best legal job I ever had. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. It's a tremendous office. They've got very good resources to protect Missourians. And, you know, what I would like to do with that office is really get it more in a position where it's protecting individual rights of Missourians. And that's across the spectrum. I have very strong feelings on that. Uh, these are things that came up, for example, in our hearing that we had with the Department of Revenue when we found out, for example, they shared the concealed carry list uh, with, with outside uh, federal agencies on three different occasions, really in violation of state law. And in talking to people who were very upset about that, and, and all anyone in state government could really tell them was, well, if you feel your rights were violated, why don't you raise two or $300,000 and go litigate uh, against the, the government and see how that works out for you? I mean, that's absurd. We should be using this, the, the resources of the state of Missouri to protect all rights of all Missourians. And whether that's against unscrupulous contractors or whether that's against the federal government, I think wherever those fights fall, I want to have those fights and make sure we use that office to the maximum uh, potential to protect individual rights. You know, I, I was very fortunate when I was there to have been not only a criminal prosecutor, but also a civil litigator and, and, and litigated a whole lot of complex civil litigation. And that combined with my, my time in private practice now, which is you know about 20 years, I've tried cases all over the state of Missouri. I've argued cases in every court of appeals in the state of Missouri, probably about 100 of them. I've had multiple arguments in the Missouri Supreme Court. I've, I've been not only involved, for example, in, in the policy of law, but the actual practice of law. And I think that office really takes somebody that understands how all of that comes together to really make sure we're protecting Missourians. Now, what's interesting is that although there was a lot of Republicans talking about getting in, in the race, right now it's just you. Now there's two Democrats, uh, Senators Scott Sifton and St. Louis County Assessor uh, Jake Zimmerman. The one common thread between the three of you is that all three of you worked for the AG's office at some point. Um, so yeah, I think I think Scott was a, he was an intern. I mean, I was an intern too, but then I was actually a prosecutor for four years. I mean, I don't. And, uh, Jake Zimmerman, I don't know if he was an intern or what he was. I mean, I, I think they did brief I think he there. worked for the Consumer Protection Division, from what I've been told. But yes, I think he was more than an, than an intern, but continue. I think he was there for about a year. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a different level of experience from, from trying the types of cases that I did. Uh, I certainly did some consumer issues as well. But, um, you know, the other thing, too, is I've been engaged in the practice of law for 20 years, litigated a lot of constitutional issues and other complex uh, complex issues. And, you know, I mean, some people may have a law degree and, and they really don't practice law. But I think, you know, I, I look forward to debating all of this with whoever is in that race and, and letting Missourians know who, uh, who has the credentials for that job and who doesn't. Now, hang on. Hang on a second. Are you, are you yeah. saying that neither Jake Zimmerman or Scott Sifton have actually practiced law? Uh, I don't know if they've I don't know if either one have, have you know, tried cases in a courtroom. I mean, I know I have, and a whole lot of them. Well, and I know that I've argued probably 100 cases in the Court of Appeals and multiple cases in the Missouri Supreme Court. I can't tell you what they've done, but you know what? That's what I look forward to discussing 
out there on on the trail when when we're talking about who's best. So basically, it's going to be a giant lawyer off about who's the best lawyer to be. Ne- never mind. Well, never mind. Quick, quick quick question: Do you expect other Republicans to get in? Because actually, it was interesting that then House Speaker Tim Jones decided not to do it, and of course, um, Senator Eric Schmidt decided to run for state treasurer instead. Are do you have any sense of if it looks like you're going to be it on the GOP side or are you know, there I, still, still I, behind I, the scenes talks about this? Uh, as far as I know, uh, it, it's me. Uh, you know, there's there's time and you never know, you know, who who pops up. But, I, you know, I mean, Tim Jones was was looking at it, I know, and he's gone on other things. And Eric Schmidt, who's the senator from uh, the 15th, uh, he is my law partner, actually, at Lathrop and Gage, and he was looking at it, but ultimately decided to run for treasurer, which, you know, I, I think that's good. We're all friends. We've known each other a long time. So so I am the candidate. Whether, you know, whether somebody, you know, pops up at the last minute, you, you can never predict that. You you brought up death penalty cases that you've been litigating uh, in the past. I, I'm, I'm curious, we've, we've now gone through a patch where we have set a record now for the number of executions in a year uh, since we brought the death penalty back. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on how Attorney General Coster has sort of handled uh, this and if you would do anything differently. You know, I, I, I think the job, because actually the, the criminal law aspect of the Attorney General's office is actually a relatively small amount, but it's what gets probably most of the attention from the Attorney General's office. But I think whether it's Nixon or Coster, uh, you know, I, I think that they they prosecuted those cases. They they requested from the court those execution dates as required by law. And I I don't think you ever really see a lot of variance in that. I think on some of the other areas where there's some discretion on which cases, civil cases in particular, you bring, there's a little bit of difference. But you know, I I think that you know I think frankly he's you know he's asked for those dates. He's prosecuted those cases as is expected of the office. And. Um, you know, having been there and, and tried those cases, in, in fact, the first one I ever had was John Middleton, who was actually executed, I think, what, three, four months ago. Um, you know, I, I know how that process works. And when you get out there in the field and you're prosecuting those cases, particularly when you're dealing with, with victims, with their loved ones and their families, and they don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, and they don't care who the Attorney General's, you know, who the Attorney General is, they just want the case prosecuted and they want justice. I think that whoever is in that office usually recognizes that and has done a pretty good job of of making sure that that's first and foremost. Uh, one last question before we let you go. Um, as you kind of, as we all said, you're the only candidate right now in the Republican contest. Um, if somebody else does get in, is it possible you could be vulnerable to a challenge by the right, considering that in your Senate campaigns you've talked often about, you know, and campaigned with moderates such as John Danforth and talked about being a moderating influence in the Senate? Or do you think that you're viciously conservative enough to, to, to win this, you know, primary if there is one? You know, I think my record speaks for itself. And whether it's, it's you know, passing Amendment 5, which I passed through the legislature, got on the ballot last year to protect Missourians' Second Amendment rights, or whether it's other uh, bills to reduce taxes, uh, or for example, the bill that I just filed to make sure that, that religious groups on public camp, college campuses have the right to assemble and meet. I think my credentials speak for itself, and those are more issues that I look forward to debating with, uh, with whoever's in that race. Absolutely. All right, I'm gonna close this out here. Uh, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at csmcdaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And Senator, I believe you have a Twitter account as well. Yeah, at Kurt U. Schaefer. Yep, that's right. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.